Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. I'm Dr. Rob Dixon, and with us today uh, on the boards and for expert commentary is Dr. Casey Patrick, our Associate Medical Director. Good day, Casey. Hello, everybody. And we've got a special guest today, our toxicology guru, Jerry Snow from Banner University out in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Snow uh, attended Indiana University with us and did a toxicology fellowship there. Uh, and is practicing uh, currently out in Phoenix. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Great to be here, Rob. Fantastic. So this episode, guys, we're going to kind of delve in. Uh, we're going to dovetail off our earlier discussion of carbon monoxide, and we're going to talk about cyanide toxicity. So the winds of winter, as I think what Dr. Patrick uh, called this episode, right? So we expect to see more house fires, uh, more potential exposures from cyanide, uh, during the season. So we thought it would be a good good winter topic for us. So just like in part one, Jerry, can we start with the basics? Let's give us a review here on where does cyanide come from? Why is it bad for us? Absolutely. So really, to be such a toxic compound, it's a very simple one. It involves one carbon and one nitrogen. And this was first isolated by a Swedish chemist back in 1782. So it's been around and isolated for a long, long time. And unfortunately, that same gentleman actually passed away a few years later, actually thought from exposure to cyanide um, as he was uh, actually working with it, uh, conducting experiments. So cyanide toxicity is not the most common toxicity, but it is a very potent toxin and obviously can cause very serious toxicity and even death. And if you look at the, uh, the poison center um, data over, say, from 2007 to 2011, there were about 1,200 cases um, reported um, during that time frame. So definitely you know, not as common as carbon monoxide, but still a very serious toxicity that everybody should know about, especially in a pre-hospital setting. So when you talk about cyanide, it really comes in three main sources. You know, classically, hydrogen cyanide is the gas form. It can also be in, be in liquid. Commercially, and what's used in industry, there are several inorganic cyanide salts, such as sodium, potassium, calcium, and these are actually crystalline white crystals. And we'll talk a little bit more about how those are used um, in a bit. But there's also a group of naturally occurring as well as synthetic um, compounds called cyanogens, which are compounds that release cyanide once they undergo metabolism, actually after absorption um, into the body. So why is cyanide bad? Well, it's the simple way to put it is it makes you an anaerobe. So think about cyanide is a term I like to use as a cellular affixient. It actually just makes your body unable to utilize oxygen. It's not affecting oxygen binding. It doesn't have the same hemoglobin effects as like carbon monoxide does. It just prevents your body from being able to do that. And its mechanism of action is quite complex, probably binding up to 40 plus different enzyme systems. The most important of which is cytochrome A3 oxidase. And what this results in is the stopping of oxidative phosphorylation. So you can't use oxygen, you can't make ATP, and your brain and your cardiovascular system, since they are so energy dependent, they don't like that very much. So as you could see, this could lead to very severe toxicity. Is that, I'm just to go back to the Swedish Swedish chemist that- Yeah, bad luck that, there, that right? I, I, think that's, I think that may be irony, actually. I don't know. Yeah. I need- Described and and uh, named and 
uh, isolated the compound and then it killed him. That, that may, may be irony. I'm not sure. Overused, misused word. We'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, what, Jerry, you know, we talked about carbon monoxide and cyanide, and I think from your description of both, uh, we're disrupting uh, our, our ability to make energy and to utilize oxygen. Um, so fairly similar presentations possibly. What, what signs or situational specifics should concern us for pre-hospital cyanide exposure or toxicity? And kind of uh, juxtapose that with the carbon monoxide situations that we talked about in the, in the yeah. last episode. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are a number of potential sources of cyanide that EMS providers should be aware of. I mean, you all already alluded to this. The most likely scenario of cyanide exposure, either for EMS providers or patients that they'll be caring for, is going to be a fire smoke inhalation situation. Um, there are numerous things that combustion of can produce cyanide, such as wool, silk, synthetic rubbers, and even polyurethane. When those are burned, all of those can produce cyanide. And there are really a number of occupations throughout the country that are working with cyanide routinely. So situations or occupations that may be more at risk of cyanide toxicity would be things like jewelry making, mining, people that are doing the kind of metalworking, plating, stripping, polishing. Um, cyanide's actually used in the laboratory as well. And as I already mentioned, those products of combustion, as well as chemical manufacturing. So you can see cyanide being associated with everything from smoke inhalation, industrial errors, or things when things go wrong in a lab would all be you know, great examples of that. Most accidental exposures to, to cyanide are going to be from reactions of the cyanide salt. So that's when they take those crystalline white solids and it comes in contact accidentally with, say, a mineral acid or even water. Because when that happens, a large amount of hydrogen cyanide is formed and released and this makes it very easily um, to be inhaled. What you see clinically, of course, depends on, you know, the dose, the duration of exposure, and, you know, the route of exposure. Because as you can imagine, if you got some of that crystal on your skin, washed it off properly, you're not going to get any symptoms. If you inhaled a very high concentration of hydrogen cyanide, you could immediately collapse and start convulsing. So it's a spectrum, much like we talked about with carbon monoxide. So patients may initially complain of, Headache, dizziness, nausea. Does that all kind of sound familiar? And you know, you can see everything from mild confusion to a gradual decrease in consciousness to like sudden collapse and coma. These patients may complain of shortness of breath, may have tachypnea, but then this can progress as they, as they become more toxic to, you know, apnea. And from a cardiovascular standpoint, initially they would be tachycardic, but eventually brady down and become um, hypotensive. So a person should be thinking about cyanide anytime there's a sudden unexpected collapse with loss of consciousness or convulsions. Um, for me in the hospital, unexplained metabolic acidosis after a sudden collapse makes me think about cyanide, specifically if I've got a lactate of greater than 10. Um, that has me really, that puts it on the, my differential for sure. And if you see central nervous system effects like loss of consciousness, confusion, convulsions combined with hypotension, tachycardia, that's suggestive of cyanide toxicity. So sudden collapse of the lab or industrial worker, a fire victim that is unresponsive with a metabolic acidosis, and then anybody that, you know, has made a suicide attempt that has coma or metabolic acidosis. Those would all be examples where I think that cyanide um, toxicity should kind of definitely be up there, um, you know, for the top of the differential. Um, 
One pearl that I would mention, too, is that patients that are concerned, let's say if, uh, there's an accident in a lab or there's an accident in the industry and people are, maybe many people are exposed. You're trying to sort out, like, you know, who needs treatment and who doesn't need treatment. If it's from a hydrogen cyanide inhalation, people that are minimally symptomatic or only moderately symptomatic, and they are removed from the exposure, once that exposure is terminated, they're not going to worsen. They're not going to decline. What you see is what you got. So if people are ambulatory out of the building, oh, we're concerned about cyanide, those people that are up and walking, they're going to be okay from a hydrogen cyanide inhalational exposure. So I think that's important to know. I think that leads us really nicely yeah, into, into, you know, for our, especially our first responder listeners out there, uh, the big question, number one question I get when discussing cyanide toxicity is when to pull the trigger on the antidote. Um, so, Jerry, can you just talk a little bit about the cyanokit, uh, sort of what's in it, and why it helps in cases of cyanide toxicity? Sure, absolutely. So, cyanokit, you know, is hydroxycobalamin, which is essentially just hydroxylated vitamin B12, and it contains a cobalt, cobalt compound in the center of it. And it's been used in Europe for years. I mean, you're going back to like the 1980. So it's been widely used for decades now in Europe, but wasn't approved in the United States by the FDA till 2006. So the mechanism of hydroxycobalamin involves it removing cyanide from tissue by forming cyanocobalamin. So the hydroxycobalamin, the cobalt within that binds cyanide, and then, then is it just, it's excreted unchanged in the urine. So, so, it's, it's, removing, so it's just a sponge. Essentially. Yep. It is binding and taking cyanide from the body, and you're just going to urinate it out. This is essentially the simplest way I could say it. So, if you're, you know, you're taking a taking a poison center call, or you know, put yourself in our shoes. We, you know, we get a, a a field call for direct online uh, medical direction. What what are your criteria? We, you mentioned some of these earlier. Um, I, I think in the discussion of. Uh, what situation clinical signs should concern you? What what things would make you absolutely pull the trigger on the on uh, recommending uh, kit usage? Sure, and I, you know, much like yourselves, I have definitely been involved with cases specifically with smoke inhalation or fires where I have absolutely treated people and kind of based on these, um, you know, empiric guidelines. There's there's actually an article uh, from pre-hospital disaster medicine in, in 2011 by O'Brien. And it more or less is titled Empiric Management of Cyanide Toxicity with um, Associated Smoke Inhalation. And they came up with some guidelines that I think are, are very reasonable. And if you look at different organizations, some people are more conservative than others when it comes to the treatment um, of cyanide toxicity using hydroxycobalamin. But I think any patient that is in an enclosed space fire, and you're thinking, I think this patient has smoke inhalation. And they've got evidence, especially if they've got suit, if they have altered level of consciousness, even very significant confusion, but especially if they have coma and they have hypotension that you don't understand, that's an example of a patient that I would absolutely treat. So, you know, in the, you know, once that patient's at the hospital, you know, I can get a quick um, bedside, you know, blood gas or lactate on them and I see severe acidosis and elevated lactate greater than 10. That's, I mean, it's kind of a no brainer for me that I'm going to treat that patient. So people with neurological symptoms, you know, ranging from altered mental status to coma that have cardiovascular effects present, like, present like tachycardia and hypotension with a known exposure to fire, I would definitely treat those patients. And I would apply those same guidelines to patients that work in industry um, or have an occupation where they could possibly have a cyanide exposure. Again, found down, 
in coma, hypotensive, I would absolutely use um, that pre-hospital and treat those patients. Can we add a little, uh, a little bit to that, Jerry, and say what if we have a, non, a clearly non-traumatic death of one of our first responders, firefighters, uh, and they've cardiac arrested in that patient? Would you go ahead and empirically treat? Is there any benefit, or would you empirically treat with the hydroxycobalamin? I, Rob, I think I would. And if you're talking about it in a fire, smoke, inhalation situation, if 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 you if it's a consideration at all, I would lean toward doing it. I don't see a lot of downside specifically in a patient in that extremis um, with that possibility of being exposure because um, you know, yeah, sure they could have had an MI or had some other issue as well, but if they had mild to moderate either CO or carb, um, you know, cyanide poisoning, those could also have contributed to that patient going down as well. Right. Cause it's, we're impairing, you know, oxygen carrying oxygen utilization, energy, yeah. energy production here. So that's, it's the double whammy to your, to your patient with a, an LAD lesion, right? It's just, it's going to, it's going to yeah. make your, well, uh, your cardiac oxygenation worse. And I, I will tell you that anybody who's cared for, for smoke inhalation victims will tell you that even children will bump their troponins. You know, so carbon dioxide, cyanide, both are extreme stresses on the heart. There's no doubt about that. I've, I've had people climb their troponin multifold abnormal just, and even, like I said, in, in children under the age of 10, teenagers, people that you know probably do not have significant coronary artery stenosis whatsoever, but they will have um, bump troponins from cardiac injury from significant toxicity. Yeah. I just want to circle back around to, to a patient you mentioned before and just to stress this, because I think it's an important point I want our listeners to get. The The flip side is the patient that is in an exposure situation, most commonly a house fire, that's removed from the inhalational source that may have vague symptoms, but GCS of 15, vital signs, normal. That's not a patient that we have to pull the trigger on the cyanokit for because once we, again, I like how you said it, what you see is what you get. And if you see a normal patient and they have vague symptoms, those are going to resolve and they're not going to clinically decline at hour two or hour three, you know, with delayed, with delayed sequela, correct? Yes. When we're talking specifically about hydrogen cyanide inhalation, that's absolutely correct case. And the only thing I would caution is if they would ever get a call, it would be a very unusual call where somebody ingested either a salt or one of those um, cyanogens that I mentioned earlier, that can be delayed for hours and patients can get sicker if it's like a dermal exposure or an ingestion. But from inhalation of hydrogen cyanide, what you see is what you get and you wouldn't expect those patients to progress. So if they make it out to the truck, they put them on 100% oxygen, they're on their way and they've got normal vital signs, normal mental status, that is not a patient that's going to decompensate from cyanide toxicity from an inhalational exposure. So what, what, if any, are the downsides to using uh, the cyanokit? What, what are the side effects? What are the, what are the commonly uh, seen problems that you guys see from a talk standpoint after, after the fact, after we pull the trigger on it? Let's say we've, we've got a hemodynamically unstable um, comatose uh, post-house uh, fire victim and we give the cyanokit. You get them in the hospital, you see them on, you know, on day one or hour six or day two, what what are the downsides, if any? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just mention one thing, too, that I think the reason that hydroxycobalamin sanokit came to the forefront is because of the advantage, especially when you're talking about in smoke inhalation, 
Um, one of which is that it does not induce hemoglobinemia um, like the nitrites did formerly. So that's how we used to treat with the old kits is you would actually give uh, patients nitrite induced methemoglobinemia, which then that methemoglobin would bind the cyanide and it would help with that. But that would further compromise oxygen delivery too, especially if you had carbon dioxide toxicity on top of it. So that was obviously a situation where you would, would want to avoid the older kits. Um, one of the other great things about it is, is it doesn't cause hypotension like the older antidotes did. Um, it actually it usually causes a little bump in blood pressure, if anything, which is a lot of the times needed, especially if these patients are very ill. From an adverse effects standpoint, the main thing that you always look for pre-hospital would be possible allergic reactions, extremely rarely reported, but you could see, you know, flushing, hives, and a patient theoretically could have a reaction to um, this antidote. You will see flushing of the skin, and it will turn all the bodily fluids red, and I mean very red, like urine is cherry-colored. Um, and same thing for their tears and everything else. Like everything turns very, very red. No, you know, that isn't, and that's going to clear up. It's just something that people should be prepared um, to see. I think the biggest drawback um, from my standpoint after the patient arrives at the hospital is there are a number of laboratory tests that the hydroxycobalamin can interfere with for many hours. And these include labs such as AST, bilirubin, some of the electrolytes such as chloride, magnesium, and even getting accurate creatinine. And probably most importantly, it's also been reported to um, interfere with a measurement of a carboxyhemoglobin, methemoglobin, and oxyhemoglobin. So it actually, especially in those specific patients, it could interfere with um, those laboratory studies. But again, when, when we're talking about these, the, the super sick comatose Oh, high risk yeah. patient, we're we're going to sacrifice the ability to check the magnesium uh, in attempt to try right. to try to save these folks, correct? Absolutely. Okay. But that's why I wouldn't in that patient that you mentioned earlier, the GCS of fifteen, awake and right. alert. Normal right. We model. just let that one lie and and work right. that up in the hospital. Yeah, you. Do, I mean, that's a patient where you're like, maybe they got mild carbon dioxide poisoning. Oh, they've got maybe headaches, some nausea, but otherwise they look well. Yeah, they probably need a carboxyhemoglobin once they get to the hospital, but they probably don't need the cyano kit because probably cyanide isn't the major issue there. And and slapping a hundred percent non rebreather on that patient is not going to cause yeah. a, a huge Absolutely. harm in the short term if you think that it's a potential, uh, you know, co poisoning carbon monoxide and cyanide i i think that's yeah, that's fair, fair to state absolutely and, and again just to reiterate one more time uh, for the listeners uh, a high point that i think is important before we close out combustion engines uh, burning wood fuel gas it's going to create carbon monoxide but from a cyanide standpoint we have to be burning plastics correct so uh industrial plastics, products wool. Silk, polyurethane, yeah. lots, of, of, lots stuff of stuff that's, that's in house fires. Right, Mattr <laughs> right. mattresses, mattresses, uh, couches, uh, foam, that, that sort of stuff. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So if you're I mean, if you're out by the wood pile, you're not going to get cyanide poisoning. Not unless you put one of those other things right on top of it. Correct. Okay. Well, Jerry, we, we really appreciate your time here at the podcast uh, to be our. Uh, go-to tox guru, uh, hopefully for the listeners out there, pairing carbon monoxide and cyanide together makes sense to me as a learner because the presentations are similar, the situations are similar, and, uh, you know, a lot of the questions um, have, have similar answers. So if, if you listeners out there have uh, more questions on this, 
uh, feel free to email us at the podcast email. We're going to put uh, several of the studies that Jerry referenced in our show notes so you guys can uh, take a look at those uh, at your leisure. Uh, thanks, Dr. Dixon, for joining us. Uh, again, questions or concerns, email us. Uh, we'll talk to everybody again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.